0: Hello everybody, welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for Monday, October 26th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today?
1: Well, Joe, we are going to examine a few topics, mostly one topic today, but in general, we look at a couple of topics and we try to evaluate them from a variety of angles in the light of facts making sure that we are entertaining ideas in good faith, no matter where they come from, doing our best to keep ourselves and our loyal listeners adequately informed.
0: Yeah, we realize that we're only human. We don't know everything. Our perspective isn't the only one that is valid, i.e. we're not on the ivory tower. We we know we are not the end-all, be-all for every argument ever. Um. Yeah I was going to make a joke about something that we are But I can't even
1: imagine one Because we're in that good of faith Um, Well can we Can we just be on the ivory tower for one week Just once sometime
0: (laughs) The the ivory tower episode
1: (laughs) (laughs) Where we just Speak like this and turn (laughs) up our noses (laughs) But anyway
0: so, So Evan what are we What are we going to start off with
1: so we're starting off talking about the election. We kind of did our big democracy episode, but we felt that we would be absolutely remiss if we didn't bring up the fact that this is our last episode before the most consequential election of our adult lives. And so we just want to kind of give a brief update, uh, maybe maybe tell some voting stories. I would like to tell my voting story because I just got back from voting just a few hours ago, voted early, and uh, hope everyone... We'll do the same or at least has a plan to vote. Um, so, yeah, election kickoff.
0: Yeah. So between Evan and I, we don't have a whole lot left to say. Um uh, I, I, I'll say this for Evan as well. Um, we've pretty much exhausted what we want to say about this election. Um, we are both very firmly in uh, favor of Joe Biden being elected uh, over Donald Trump. And we go from there and um, yeah, that's where we're at. And there's what 10 days left until the, uh, the election is over. All voting is done and I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it looks like Biden has a good convincing lead, but you know, since we live in the upside down time, it's hard to have any certainty in this world. So um ain't, counting too many eggs before the chickens roost or something. I don't know.
1: None eggs. That's the proper amount to count.
0: No eggs. I haven't counted an egg yet. But, um, Evan, what do you have to say?
1: Yeah, so I just want to talk about my experience voting today. So um, there's only a few early voting locations open in Indianapolis where I live, and Within Marion County, there's like a million people, so it's it's quite a large population attempting to vote in just a few locations. So today, even though we showed up right when voting started, we wanted to show up early, but I made us late. I'll take uh, I'll take the L for that. Um, my wife can confirm I was the reason we were late. Um, my but anyway, wife, my wife. Yes, Borat came out too as uh, the sequel. I mean, I guess we could. Is it news that the first Borat came out 14 years ago? Is that newsworthy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think Um, that
0: fits into newsworthiness.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so we got there when it opened and we got in line and it was in this huge, huge is probably an overestimation, but it was a very large municipal building. The line wrapped all the way around the building and when it was all said and done it took three and a half hours to go through the whole rigmarole from the time we got there to the time we were back in our car after having cast our votes um but very much worth it and honestly that whole experience actually of seeing all the people in a line just there not because not just because they want to vote so badly but they want to vote early they want to get it done they want to participate in this democracy Um, you know, which is already kind of fragile in many respects. It was actually pretty inspiring to me. And I want to share the story of a man who I spoke to who was in front of us in line. Uh, He was an older African-American man. And I swear to you, this story is true. It kind of sounds like some bullshit inspiration porn that someone on the internet would write. But I promise (laughs) you, this was what this guy told me. He said that he specifically wanted to make sure that he voted today because... It would have been his mother's 97th birthday today, and she was an early advocate for voting rights in a time when it was very difficult um, for women and people of color to vote. And so it was it was just a, a big reminder of how far we've come, how far we still have to go. And I, I loved meeting that man today and getting to speak with him for, well, (laughs) I was going to say a little while, but with how long the line was ended up being more than a little while, but you know, it was was cold. It was windy. Yeah, (laughs) it was cold. It was windy, but there was a good group of people there who we'd never met before. You just strike up conversation and we made it work. It actually felt much quicker than it was in terms of absolute hours so um i i got a little dose of inspiration today there's so much to be cynical about but it was a great experience even if it took for fucking ever
0: you see when i went to go and vote early i i went at a time that i'm pretty sure nobody knew existed uh for early voting so i was the only person there an old man showed up as i was leaving I registered to vote and voted in, I don't know, less than 15 minutes. So um, I'm not jealous. No way. Don't worry. Yeah, no way. And I got to be inside the whole time. Um, it was super nice. But yeah, I had to figure out that there was additional early voting time on the weekends by going to the city website, finding a section where public notices were. And then look at a PDF of a picture of a public notice in a newspaper saying that the hours for the <laughs> during the election season were extended on the weekends. And I was like, man, I I had to look hard for this. Um, I looked all over every website. I tried finding Facebook or Twitter accounts. None of those had any information. It was. <laughs> I did a lot of looking and I finally found it and then that I was rewarded with no line because nobody else knew it it was happening on Saturday. So Yeah. I mean,
1: it's an L because they probably should have publicized it more, but big W for Joe. Big W for
0: Joe. Um I mean, isn't that the the whole thing is that voting's really great with all the barriers if you're able to make it through all the barriers yeah uh, yeah it, that that's like the thing you know people are like, oh you should be you should want it you should have to be able to do it and then it just it amounts to yeah I have the ability to wait in line for five hours at this one place one time and then my registration never gets questioned again for a jillion years <laughs> so yeah
1: <laughs> yeah to uh to paraphrase uh, a, a stance you like to take on certain issues, if you make voting easier, more people will vote. Shocker. Wow.
0: Whoa. Crazy. <laughs> crazy. More people will vote if they can, if it's easy to vote. Like, hell, I was, you know, a lot of people will, um, like, scold young people for not voting. But for, for young people to vote, it, it it's a big new time hurdle, you know, in interfacing with the bureaucracy You know getting documents that you may not have you know if you're not Mm -hmm. renting or owning a house or a vehicle you have like no none of the documents um, that are really required to register to vote in most places Um, you know to prove who you are and where you live and all that bullshit and you know once you register and if you stay at the same place normally your registration stays Um, Mm -hmm. You don't get deregistered. So older people have uh, the incumbency of time (laughs) on their side Mm -hmm. to stay registered and vote. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas young people, you know, especially like if you're at college, getting all the requisite stuff together to prove that you can vote and then finding the time and finding out where then blah, 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 blah. It's a big hurdle to get that initial voter registration. Now, if you get past that, it becomes easier. But at least that initial hurdle is is tough. And I can understand why young people don't vote as much as older people, because, again, uh, incumbency bias.
1: Yeah. And it's especially if you don't have parents who are really willing to do a lot of the legwork. I mean, that's, I'm sure that's how I, I don't remember registering to vote when I was 18. I know I did. I don't remember what the process was like, but I'm sure it was, you know, having my parents help me gather up the documents, take me where I needed to go, know the dates and everything. So yeah, if you don't have someone like that in your life who has some more age and authority, it's its kind of tough to take that initiative yourself. So um, yeah. And I mean, automatic I, voter reason, registration.
0: The reason I initially ever registered to vote was because Illinois has a program where you can just go online and then no other documents needed than your Illinois driver's license. And you just like plug that in. And if you have like your social security number and whatever else, you're, you can be registered to vote um, just filling out a simple online form. Well, maybe that's
1: what I did then, because that sounds pretty easy. sounds like something I would forget doing.
0: But if I had to do a thing where I had to do a whole song and dance of like prove where I live and have documents and go to a courthouse during the day, there is no way I would have ever registered to vote just point blank that that is not high on things that I am generally comfortable doing, even if I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So being able to, in the comfort of my own home, register to vote, that was, uh, that really helped. So anyway, that was a tangent, but that's what this show is all about. Um, if you haven't Just call voted it the tangent yet, show yeah. Yeah. If you haven't voted, um, go vote, you know. Um, We like to be adequately informed, but you can't be informed on everything, so I voted to recall all the judges on the slate. I don't know. Hey, what me too. Been doing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's so funny. I did the exact same thing.
0: <laughs> I, I I really considered. I was like, do I am I going to leave this blank or am I going to vote to recall them all? Um, and I think I, I think I'll vote to recall them all. You know, just help it along a little bit.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I didn't I didn't elect them. This is my first time voting in this municipality, so you know, let's uh, get, 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 some get new somebody in new in on there. the ballot. Yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah. That's what you do. Uh, (laughs) Clearly, we both came to this conclusion independently. So maybe there's some validity in that.
0: Well, and also (laughs) oftentimes in the recalled judges world, they were never elected to begin with. Um, They They get appointed, appointed and they get appointed. But this is like the Democratic backstop where they can popularly be elected out of office but mm-hmm. not be proper popularly elected into office which mm-hmm. is something i'm in, generally in favor for you know kind of solves the mis, mismatched incentives of the appointment for life versus you know uh, electing judges it's a it's a kind of nice middle ground where yeah not too many get judges do get recalled ever but there is at least the option where the popular will can come together to recall a judge. Mm, so,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. But anyway, uh, that's how I voted. Um, you got any words You're, on going to vote?
1: Uh, well, you were saying something like, if you haven't voted, dot, dot, yeah. dot.
0: Yeah, go go vote. That's That's, <laughs> I mean, we've all heard it a thousand times, and I'm just going to say it again. Go vote. And preferably vote for the people I like But apparently I'm not supposed to say that Vote
1: for the people Whose policy, who, who already support My favorite policy positions Yeah,
0: exactly Come on, sheeple um,
1: So, write in Andrew Yang and yeah, yeah, they're
0: very productive <laughs> Really helps out a lot of people You know, when the, the choices are what they are Yeah, no Um So, I think that's that, unless you have anything else you want to say.
1: No, I mean, uh, like like Joe said, no new takes. Just vote.
0: Just vote. We're there. We've heard everything that there is to be. Um, It's all just kind of noise. So, anyway, the meat, the meat of the episode. We're here. And the potatoes. Don't
1: forget the potatoes.
0: Yes. Yes. It's been roasting in the oven for some time. It's gonna be nice, thick, and juicy. It's been it's been baking in the oven for for months now. It's gonna have a lot of umami, unctuous flavor. Um, we're gonna talk about the book, the 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 great treatise of our time, One Billion Americans by Matthew Glacius.
1: The long awaited discussion of One Billion Americans. Matt Iglesias
0: the 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 brewing the long con the dry age discussion of 1,001 million Colombians
1: the absolutely riveting and long-standing dissection of 50 million score Yankees
0: yes there there's gonna be a whole lot of Americans That's that's that that should be the title Uh, in in Matthew Iglesias three times more Americans than we have now. Um, You know, it's it is it. I like the book a lot. Uh, Just first impressions. Um, It is a great synthesis of. A lot of ideas that are floating around in the progressive liberal world and puts them into a cogent theory of governance and urgency and what they all mean. Would yeah, you Yeah, I liked
1: it a lot too. Yeah. Um yeah. as a general overview, basically The problem, as Matt Iglesias sees it, facing America's future is that we won't be the most powerful nation in the world for very much longer, that as China and India begin to pair better economic and living standards with their massive populations, we will inevitably fall behind. Even if America stays, say, twice as rich per person as a country like India or China, we will not be ahead in terms of overall national wealth. Yeah, we'll you know, be they don't, they don't blown have to, away. <laughs> yeah, they don't have to catch up to us on a per-person basis to surpass us in the aggregate. And so, um, you know, there's been some complaints that it's a, a nationalistic argument, and I get it, but he's making the case as someone concerned about U.S. policy and all domestic policy is inherently focused on what's going to be best for u.s citizens and u.s global power so i think if you look at it under that lens it's really not you know it's not xenophobic or yeah or anything like that it's just asking if america wants to stay as the most powerful nation in the globe what do we need to do and yeah. the solution is a bit unorthodox isn't it joe
0: I mean, yes, definitely after essentially because after the Trump presidency, that was basically like no new people under all costs Um, to come out. And he, you know, Matthew Iglesias even admits he he really wanted to, like, provocatively name the book so that, you know, he could get, you know, your Tucker Carlson's, your Sean Hannity's, your your. Donald Trump's to try and like call him out for how outrageous it is to try and sell books, which, you know, got to tip my hat. You know, that's pretty good. (laughs) It never really quite happened. But um, so the the basic idea of it is that China has a whole lot of people like Evan said. And if they were to reach a per capita wealth that is a third of the U S per capita health or wealth, then that would mean that they are the bigger economy. And then they would start to be able to th- assert their values out into the world. And we're already seeing minor versions of that, that people are very not about like, uh, Disney movies being censored for the Chinese sensibilities that, are had in the Chinese market because the Chinese market is so big or protests, uh, uh, that NBA players have being squashed because, um, you know, China is sensitive about Hong Kong and, you know, the NBA still wants the market that's in China. So the idea here is that if we as an America can greatly, you know, increase the size of our market, we can remain the dominant force in the United States vis-a-vis China, whereas it's not arguing that it is the greatest good that America remains supreme in the world hegemonic – as the world's hegemonic power, but that it is better than China who is the up-and-comer at this time.
1: Yeah, so um... – I want to kind of break it down. There's sort of five main threads, I think. I I don't know how you had it broken up, Joe. But um, basically, there's five, I think, main parts to this book. And the first big part that Iglesias spends some time detailing is that, as he calls it, America is empty. There's been a lot of criticisms that if we wanted to rapidly grow our population that we would just be living in these dystopian blade runner overcrowded worlds and cities, and we would have to start tearing up our conserved land and developing it. And that's not really the case. What we need to understand is that among developed countries, the United States has remarkably low population density. Even if you take out Alaska and just look at the contiguous United States, We got a lot of room, and unfortunately, there are factors conspiring to keep that population density low, mainly the declining birth rate in the United States and also restrictive immigration policies.
0: Well, and then also a good part of it, I mean, this is part of another through line, but A part of it is that there, you know, the increased urbanization where the people within the country are more greatly going to specific population centers versus the country as a whole. Like, I can tell you there's a whole lot of room in Galesburg for some more people. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also, after a drive today, there's a lot of room in Watauga, Oneida, Altona, Galva, and Kilwani for more people. Um, which are all a bunch of really small towns in uh, Western Illinois. So it's not so much. I mean, we we wouldn't even need to build more places. Just these towns that have had greater populations, but have seen you know population decline. You know, if you just got them back up, that's a whole lot of space that's available for the taking.
1: Yeah. So that's that's uh, number four here on my, my, uh, my outline uh, about the repopulating city. So we'll definitely get back to that through line. Um, but bottom line is even if we tripled the US population density, tripled the population, we would still be less crowded than places like France and pretty comparable to places like England and Germany. So we're not Uh, You know, even if our population were to explode to triple, there would definitely be issues that would arise, but overcrowding would not really be one of them.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe we would have overcrowding in the sense that there are people who willingly choose to be, um, I don't know, out there and really secluded and they wouldn't be able to be as secluded as they want. But that's not I mean, do we orient our whole society to those people? so
1: unlikely yeah
0: (laughs) yeah unlikely doesn't seem like a great uh you know very democratic uh group to um pander to but anyway
1: so his first premise is that america is empty so we have the room to grow our population by quite an immense amount and remain relatively spacious by the standards of modern western countries so how do we go about building up some of this population growth and the second aspect of his argument and the first sort of solutiony part is that we should be doing a lot more to help families basically it would be fine if everyone was having as many kids as they wanted and it just happened that this was our birth rate, our population rate. But what Iglesias shows is that there is a growing gap between the number of kids that women say they want and then the size of families that end up occurring in the United States. And there's a lot of reasons for this. The first is that college debt is forcing people to start families later and later you basically you know this isn't true for everyone but on average people want to start families once they're financially secure and they feel like they can they can really make a good go of it for their kids and with people coming out of college with more and more debt and increasing numbers of people going to college and having to take on this debt it just means that people are having to spend more time repaying debt as opposed to building a nest egg with which they can then feel comfortable starting a family And so by the, you know, the corollary to this is that by taking meaningful steps to address the existing college debt burden and also making American colleges and universities cheaper in the long run, we could actually do a lot more to get our birth rate up to the ideal rates that are reported. Yeah.
0: So front i mean it's just kind of a basic fact like if people have a big financial burden that they have to take care of they're not going to be super willing to take on other financial burdens and at least right now um you know at least people who i mean i'm pretty sure the most you know most of the populace understands that having a child costs a lot of money and to raise a child in a very, you know, in a decent, upstanding way does also take a whole lot of resources as well. So if you're paying down college debt, it's hard to take on the additional financial responsibility willingly of having a child, at least for people who want to feel like they're making the correct decisions in life and being, you know, responsible, which it is quite hard to do with having a kid these days in the day, you know, in the years that people are supposedly supposed to have kids, you know, I, I think both Evan and I have, um, you know, uh, you know, personal thoughts that interface with this. Yeah. Um, quite directly.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, and you know, it doesn't even have to be as, as dire as say, well, you either have college debt and you don't get to have a family, but you know, again, it's about, that number of kids being less than the ideal. So maybe you really want to have two kids, but you feel like you're really only going to be able to provide for one. So you only have one, or you want a big family, but you have to reduce it. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah. The stat from the book is essentially that it is still, it has held pretty steadily over the last 50 years that the ideal number of kids wanted by americans and especially american women is about 2.6 2.5 2.6 that has remained pretty steady for i mean maybe not 50 years but for a good long time but what the real difference is is that over time you know in the past it used to be that um people were achieving a whole lot closer to that number getting up there and the two point whatevers that are getting close to the ideal number of children. But over time we have been declining in just, you know, even declining in the number of kids people are having versus, you know, the number that they want to the point where I can't remember, you know, specifically, but at this point people are either having 1.7 or 1.9 kids. And, I mean, that's a, that's a whole lot of kids left on the table <laughs> yeah. um, um, that people aren't being able to have. And the number one reason people cite for not having kids or not having more kids is finances. Um, that they don't feel like that they can comfortably afford having more kids, which ends up making kids like a – having kids like a, uh, a luxury item that – you know, a a consumption, a luxury consumption item that the wealthy get to do. Um, Which is... Yeah, that
1: was uh, one of my favorite passages from the book was, we have to recognize on some level that children are a societal obligation, not just a consumption choice.
0: Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was a really good line. Um, Never thought of it quite like that. Um, But let me get... It is... I I don't want to derail from your uh, through lines. But then, you know, it's not just the college debt is that, you know, even absent college debt, that having kids is damn expensive.
1: Um, Yes. Let me break in real quick because that's the next part anyway. But yeah. yeah, Joe's absolutely right that regardless of college debt, that sort of delays the start when you do start having kids, things are still really expensive. So what can we do to. Make it cheaper for people to have kids because remember the idea is get to 1 billion Americans to do that We will need to have an increase in birth rate How do we make having children less of a financial burden and more attractive?
0: Well, I mean part of it is to just give people money if they have kids um, To have a kind of child allowance where if you have a kid you get I don't know there are, there's about a bajillion ways you can do it just like anything in the public policy world. You can give it as a monthly stipend. You can give it for this. You could do it a big lump sum payment at the beginning. You know, there's a bunch of small things where you could just make it so that child care is more available and cheap for people to use. Um, you know, there is there was a mention of this really cool program that they do in Finland where every time a child is born they send the parents with a, a box that has all the stuff you would need to get a child, you know, need for, to care for a child in its very early stages. And the box can be used as a crib, which is like really cool because cribs are mm-hmm. expensive. And, uh, you know, the whole the whole gist of it is that there are a lot of things that can be done to make it easier for people to have children. Which, you know, I I don't know. There wasn't a whole lot of interfacing with this, but I swear whenever, you know, you talk about like welfare or programs for children or something like people want to go on to like the responsibility of the parents. And it just feels so tiring for me because it's like, is a child's future dependent on the shitty decisions their parents make or even can or cannot make um every child should deserve to have a you know adequate floor and you know even parents who make a middle-class living have issues paying for kids Mm -hmm. so just making sure you know everybody has kids at every you know not everybody but everybody As a generalizable statement, you know, all income levels, all races, all people have kids. So we should acknowledge that by making policies that make it easier to have kids, which is often a lot of people's biggest joys in their lives.
1: Mm -hmm. And I want to pick up on this thread about the moralizing about it, because, yeah, let's say there's someone who really isn't in a financial position to take good care of a kid, you know, maybe by some outside standard, they quote unquote, shouldn't be parents. Guess what? The kid's here. So what do you do? Do you, do you let the kid just roil in poverty or do you take care of it on a societal level? And I, I would hope that in a rich nation grounded in the values of empathy and trying to take care of, vulnerable groups of our populace including kids that we wouldn't try to ask questions about why we should or shouldn't be taking care of a child who has no means to support themselves
0: right but i i think i think uh we we took the bait a little bit where iglesias goes into this where he's like you know these are all programs that Progressives really are in favor of, but they always use it through the lens of an anti-poverty program and are very uncomfortable with a kind of pronatalist vision of it. Um uh you know a a I I think pronatalist just means pro having kids, right? There yeah. isn't like an... Extra, okay. I mean, there's often as far as other I understand connotations that, with yeah. it. Yeah. There are often other uh, implications that go with it because, you know, pro-natalist policies are often used by fascists or dictators or, you know, people with heavy-handed exclusionary national visions. But at a face value if it's for everybody, pronatalist policies are good for everybody and everybody wants to have families. Everybody does have families. It's a very basic human nature. You know, I think, you know, again, in, you know, liberal and progressive circles, we try to make sure that there's like a space for people who choose not to have kids, which is a very real population. But, you know, most people still want to have kids and have families and it's no, it shouldn't be an issue being pro family in that aspect.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So a couple of other things that I think are important to bring up as, as potential policy fixes, in addition to everything that Joe said, but you know, invest in parental leave. It is going to be more expensive than not, but parents who are better able to take time off from work to be with their newborns it makes it so that the, the the newborns and the children have better outcomes. and again, it makes people want to have kids if you can take that time off to spend with them. Um,
0: I mean yeah. why I it just you know just from an individualistic perspective, why do we want ourselves to not spend time with our kids? Yeah. Like, like, let's put it this way. Like, you know, the parental leave thing is often framed as a like giving paid time off to people who don't deserve it or some, you know, that, again, it's always through something of the deserving lens. But that's also it's for everybody and everybody would get to use it. And are, are you saying that you believe that you shouldn't have time off? To spend with your kids because everybody would like to have time off to spend with their at at least their newborn. I mean, after that, who knows? But, you know, (laughs) I would imagine most people want to spend time with their kid who was just born.
1: And even beyond parental leave, if we just had a more generous paid leave system in general or as Iglesias argues, uh, a stronger system of national holidays, then, you know, you could take time off. To, ha- to spend with your kids even, you know, every Arbor Day or, you know, whatever freaking extra holiday we would give day or, you know, yeah. time and a half. Bank
0: holiday. To.
1: Yeah. And then, um, you know, then people who don't have kids could enjoy that as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. These programs that help people if they're done universally, um, especially with kids, because the argument is, is that with kids, everybody has kids. I mean, sure, when the rich family in Finland gets the box from the government, you know, they probably throw most of it out, but they're still getting it. And it's showing that, you know, it has the, you know, that uh, the rich family is still getting to participate in whatever, you know, tradition is set up of getting the box when the child is born. You know, it's a reminder that, you know, even no matter what, the society cares about every kid and we should move to being more caring about every kid and not just saying it, but doing it. And it would help us increase the birth rate.
1: Yeah, Iglesias gives a really good defense of universal policy instead of means-tested policy. For one, they're more popular because more people enjoy the benefits of them. And for two, it sends an important symbol that says we as a society – believe that we have a role to play in taking care of children all children and so it says even if you can't afford to take care of your kids on your own you don't have to you can spend that money somewhere else and you know do whatever but we as the society will make sure that the kids are okay which i think is admirable
0: yeah yeah and you know if we were to go into more uh You know, practical progressive policy making. You know, technocratic things. You know, kids raised well often tend to be uh, turn into morally upstanding adults who can can contribute to society. Um, Now, not to say that people who are you know whatever are not human or whatever, but you know, it's generally good when people are morally upstanding and able to contribute to society, you know, less crime, less people on welfare in general, you know, again it's kind of the liberal spaces where we're so there's the backdrop of such, you know, heinous attacks that it's like, you know, we don't want to be like uh, you know, we got to reduce crime, you know, or, you know, because people have hardship and, you know, they should be able to do something or, you know, Along those lines, but you know, it's good to have good, a good society, no matter what it is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think in polarized times, these things kind of clash, but I think it's true on both ends. Like, yes, we want to have a front end statement of values that says, I don't care what the end results are going to be. We're just going to take care of people because that's what we should do. But it's also OK to say, hey, when we take care of people, we have positive outcome ABC. And so we should do it as that type of investment as well. I don't think those are mutually exclusive positions and I'm not trying to say that you are saying they are. But that seems to be they often some end people up being like that. them. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. It ends up being do you want to be the cushy, feely guy or do you want to be the
1: hard technocrat? Um, you can be both yeah, you can be both. Couple final notes on family policy. Um, daycare should be easier to have access to as well as time in the summer or, you know, programming for kids in the summer. Um, and one way to do this is to reduce sort of needless regulations on child care. One of the ones that he talks about are certain laws that different places have that reduce the number of kids per daycare attendant that are legally allowed. And this mm-hmm. sounds like a really good idea, but as Iglesias cites, this this hasn't really been shown to make any difference in the quality of care. You know, 10 kids playing together and going through snack time is not any better than 12 kids playing together and having a snack time and what have you. Um, so... It's not about just you know deregulation, blah, 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 but being smart with the regulations that we put into place. And here's something that I want your opinion on, Joe, because yeah. there's another one that's coming up in the news. I can't remember what state or city or whatever trying to do this, but it's D.C. OK, yeah. So D.C. passed a regulation which is going to require childcare workers to hold a bachelor's degree. There's going to be that minimum standard. And it's of only an associate's. Is it? I, I read bachelor's somewhere.
0: Well, maybe the old rule was associates and they're bumping it up to bachelors. But anyway, this is what do you think of this? Yeah, (laughs) this is the worst of the like occupational licensing world. Like, you know, you wouldn't make a law that says you have to get a four year degree to flip hamburgers like not to say that you know taking care of a child and flipping hamburgers are the same thing but you obviously don't need that skill set to do that um you mm-hmm. do not need that level of education to perform that duty and i mean do, does this mean you know do we get into a weird world weird world where like only mothers of mothers who have college degrees are trusted to take care of their own children where you know there's some minimal level of education needed to be deemed able to take care of children Um, it just seems outrageous to me Um, and it you know it is something that is disguised as you know hey isn't this a good thing but it really just drives up the cost of child care And limits its availability.
1: Yeah, because it's just... There's sort of this idea in some circles that you just add education and it's like a little turbo boost to any other thing, but... I don't think you need to have gone to a formal institution of higher education to take good care of a kid. And you're right. All it does is mean that the people who will work in childcare will demand higher salaries because they will have to pay in on the front end and uh, fewer people will be able to participate at least initially until they can recredential. And then the supply of, Workers available goes down, which drives wages up, which drives cost up. So you're just in this this cycle where you're going to, again, make things much less affordable for parents without any clearly demonstrated benefit.
0: Right. I mean, it it's this thing that we do in the United States a lot where we decide that there's some minimal floor that a service can be at and you can't go below it. But then it creates this you know, higher threshold for getting into a, quote, market, and then we don't do anything to, you know, or do very little to alleviate for people who fall below that threshold. Like, you know, there are a lot of, there, there are a good number of people who would have jobs if they were, if there was a lower minimum wage. Would they be very good jobs? No. But- There would be more jobs and people, you know, there would be able to be a, you know, more bottom rungs of a ladder, which, you know, but then we run up to against that. You know, we also have this ideal that, you know, if somebody works, you know, however much that they should be paid at least this much, which is a real ideal. So, you know, what the idea is, is that, okay, we have a minimum cutoff for what people can earn. And then if people don't have the skills to get a job that has that, you know, up to that minimum cutoff, then you know, we help subsidize their life and stuff like that. Or, you know, something similar can be said with food. You know, we have a, you know, uh, the United States has very high food standards for, you know, compared to, I don't know, a good part of the world where, you know, there's a lot of practices that you can't do in the preparation of food and, you know, to make sure that it's safe and, you know, you can go to basically any restaurant in the United States and not really get sick. Um, You know, it's not a constant fear. But then also by making the food standards higher means that you can end up pricing out a fair number of people at the bottom rung. Like, you know, people who make less than a dollar a day in, you know, in the areas of the world where extreme poverty still exists, they still eat Um, And that's because the quality of their food is way lower, but they're still able to eat. So in the United States, we decided that there was a minimum quality of food. And then we subsidize people to be able to buy that food that that's at that minimum quality. So all of this is to say is that making it so that people have to have advanced degrees to take care of children means that you're limiting the supply of people who can take care of children, thus making it more of a luxury good. While the quality of the care may theoretically be better, which I don't necessarily know is true. It it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you know, it, it just isn't borne out that that increase, quote, increase of quality really nets better outcomes.
1: Yeah. And that's that's where it comes down to me. Like, I I think having safe food is a good ideal. I think I see the benefit to that. But having a a babysitter who went to a university What's the benefit? Uh, Yeah, You know, they're not it's it's not teaching. It's not an educational based thing. It's care. And that's still very important. I'm not at all saying that it's not important or not skilled or or difficult, but it just it it doesn't require when you go to college, you know, you you read research papers, you do applied projects, you take interdisciplinary courses. It's just it's overkill.
0: You know, I'll say with, you know, the people, a lot of people that I've gone to college with, I wouldn't necessarily rank, um, uh, you know, kindness in taking care of children as probably one of the top qualities that they hold. Um, <laughs> there you go. I would I would hedge to bet that probably the people who are best at child care may not be college educated. Um, there is a good chance at that. Um, because, you know, I'm going to guess there may be some sort of selection bias that happens where, you know, the people who are really good at childcare don't end up going to college. Um, yeah, could be, but you know, that's just me, um, some conjecture here, but all of this is to say is that if you want something to be more available and, um, you know, cost less, you, you bring down the barriers to entry you, you bring down the, you know, the, the regulatory burden, or you just massively subsidize it
1: Mm -hmm.
0: to make it to the point where, you know, they could possibly have this scenario where you have to have an advanced degree or, you know, a college degree to take care of children, but then it's just massively subsidized so that, you know, it's so that, you know, we have this minimum floor, but then it's available to everybody, which is not the case. It's just going to make child care less available.
1: So all of this is to say there's a lot that we can be doing that would make parents feel better about having their desired number of kids. And that can help increase the birth rate.
0: But Evan... We're not going to get to one billion Americans by just having
1: more children, are we? No, Joe, we're not. How astute of you. So what else do you think we can do to get more people in the country?
0: Um, we could get more people into the country.
1: There you go. Immigration reform is hey. tenant number three. Um. So basically, Iglesias' immigration policy has been one of his most controversial aspects of this book, at least from what I've seen on the old Twitty Twit. um, Because when we remember Donald Trump's merit-based immigration system, he argues that that's not really a bad idea. He thinks that as it was written, it was stupid because there were just weird exceptions. And his other problem is that Part of Donald Trump's merit-based immigration system involves cutting the amount of immigrants when he wants to greatly expand the amount of immigrants entering.
0: Yeah, so part of how immigration works right now is that there is, well this again with the trump administration everything's kind of in turmoil and constantly changing but the general idea of how american immigration has happened since about the 70s is that there is a fixed number of people who are allowed into the country every year and every like country or region kind of gets a fixed amount of allowed immigration um from that area and then there are other programs you know refugees and in, in you know work visas and all that stuff but that's just kind of the general immigration and you know there's kind of a lot you know there's a a lottery to it there is a kind of randomness to it it's not like you show up and you meet x y and z requirements and then they just guarantee that you're let in um whereas what Iglesias is provo- proposing is that we do have a merit-based system for letting people in but we don't have the caps we just let in basically everybody who you know fills in requirement x y and z
1: yeah um the idea being that uh, far from taking away jobs and opportunities from americans actually bringing more prosperous people into the country creates more jobs creates more opportunity that when people anyone who is willing to and you know granted i'm gonna sound like i'm i've bought into the american dream ethos, and just know that i haven't but for the simplistic sake of this argument people, you know really the
0: american dream ethos is not for people already in america (laughs) i i've kind of come to realize that
1: Oh, I mean, it's, it's also not probably for immigrants. This yeah. is a bigger thing. <laughs> but anyway, the idea is that bigger if than someone one is able billion to,
0: Americans.
1: It's bigger than two billion Americans. Shit. It's bigger than 10 to the ninth cheesesteak eaters. It's, it's huge.
0: <laughs> but anyway.
1: Um, yeah. So the idea being that having industrious people who can create more businesses create more innovation just creates more opportunities and has positive externalities for the other residents of our country and you know there a lot of that makes sense at face value it seems like a good idea to increase our immigration obviously um, and, and Iglesias kind of mentions this too in the book you still want to have a, a robust refugee program you can't you can't say like the poor, uh immigrant coming from guatemala or wherever just trying not to die we turn them away but a lot of times immigration and asylum get lumped into the same bowl but they don't have to be i don't think
0: yeah so i this was some thinking that i i just had is that like It seems to be that the people who are most resistant to immigration, in some ways, it kind of makes sense. So like the people. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people who in bad faith oppose immigration. But like the kind of, quote, Donald Trump insurgent winning based on his views on immigration, like, you know, in our hometown of Galesburg, there has been population decline. And when there's population decline and, no, and population decline caused by diminishing economic opportunities, there really is a fixed pie and a somewhat declining pie at that um, that people can choose from. And there's this feeling that if there were more people to come in, then they would be taking that slice of the pie and then there would be no more left for the people who are still there. But what ends up happening with population growth is that somehow through market creation and having more consumers and you know greater expanded ability, markets are generally able to handle more people into it and get them into jobs that end up being about the same and then wages overall don't decline because of an increase in population so it ends up being that population growth is generally good for communities and municipalities and states and all that i mean you get all the arguments where you know also you you know by having more people you have a bigger tax base and you're you're better able to fund all of your programs whereas You know, it's hard to pay into a pen or to have a completely uh, balanced pension program when, you know, you have a declining tax base. But regardless, if you're if you're if you have population increasing, that's generally good.
1: Yeah. And I like how you bring it up in relation to cities with declining um, populations, because this gets into the fourth big part of this book for me. And that's the idea that we should, as part of our growth plan, is repopulate these cities. Well, while you have cities like San Francisco, Boston, maybe like Austin, Texas, that are really just sort of growing and sprawling out, what you're finding is that there are a ton of other cities like Galesburg or even bigger places like Toledo, Ohio, Buffalo, New York, that are really kind of cratering and they're shrinking very rapidly. Detroit has been just absolutely decimated. Oh, yeah. Uh, St. Louis, you know, places all over a lot of the, the old Rust Belt, yeah, um, that still have, like, this great, you know, maybe unattended to, but they have the basic bones and infrastructure of a robust city because they once had a big population. And so repopulating cities could be a part of, of this solution and one way to do that is with targeted immigration visas so you say to someone hey you want to come to this country maybe you're not like a Nobel Prize winning physicist but if, if you just want to work some job why not do it in Toledo why not do it in st. Louis and so you have targeted visas that say you can come here and live in this country as long as you spend the first five years of that in say you know detroit a place that needs the population and then that way you don't have to necessarily even build huge new infrastructures you just have to repair and then local economies can grow in that cycle that joe was talking about earlier um I mean, so yeah, i, you I can really actually, like that idea targeted visas yeah.
0: yeah you can be the town that the people there want to be like yeah you know, there ends up being a shared misery when a town kind of declines where it's like you're still the last people and, you know, you like the, you know, the, uh, the memory of the town more than the possible change in future. But, you know, if you want things to get going, then you got to get going and yeah.
1: And I would Go hope ahead. there's not enough people who are xenophobic enough who would sit there and cross their arms and say, "I would rather have Cleveland die than have it revived through immigrants." You know, like I mean,
0: <laughs> I mean, that's been largely the story, uh, at least to my understanding, of like Minneapolis, where not really Minneapolis has been a city that hasn't, you know, had a whole lot of big booms or you know, you know, they don't have like a big industry there. But they have taken on a whole lot of (laughs) they've taken on a whole lot of uh, of uh, immigrants there. And that's. Yeah, they have a big
1: Somali community. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that they. Yeah. yeah, They've been able to keep their city going and fight off decline by just allowing more people or, you know, taking on more people living there than Mm -hmm. otherwise would be. And that's, you know, a strategy that is you know, it's it seems to be quite beneficial. Um you know, you see issues in you know across the you know some of the developed world, like in Japan where the age, you know, the average age of the population is increasing every year and people are having fewer and fewer kids and it's uh, you know it's falling, you know, there's a even greater burden on the youngest population there to help provide for everybody who's mm. old. And, you know, just making sure that population, it just generally seems good for society, for governments and tax bases and all the numbers and all that stuff to work out, that if you have an increasing population, that is good.
1: Yeah. Um, so the, the targeted visas is one of my favorite parts of this book because it just is such a no brainer to me, but there are other strategies that Iglesias thinks we can use to repopulate cities. One of them being changing how we structure tax abatement laws. So when we think of a, a a company like Amazon or Google, there's always a big furor when they try to build a new headquarters or a new distribution center or something and we end up with these cities sort of in a race to the bottom where they all give you know tax break after tax break after tax break to lure these companies in and then they just pick you know palo alto or austin or, or a tech hub that's already existing and if you listen to our episode on the new geography of jobs you'll know why so iglesias proposes why not make it so that San Francisco cannot offer tax breaks to big tech companies who want to come to San Francisco. Boston, New York cannot offer big tax breaks, but still allow places like Cleveland, like Cincinnati, like Detroit, allow those places to offer the tax breaks so that way there becomes an incentive for companies like Amazon and Google who offer a lot of high paying rejuvenative community jobs to open in these types of locations.
0: Yeah. Because there are virtuous cycles that, you know, make it just it's hard for other places to compete. But it is interesting that I there's actually kind of been a series going on in the Freakonomics podcast where they've been um talking about that we may have we're already past peak New York um in its modern incantations. But Um, that's a different conversation but (laughs) yeah just trying to incentivize these companies that don't necessarily need to be in these big towns with a lot of things already going for it they can just move somewhere else Mm
1: -hmm. like
0: it it just seems wow crazy um (laughs) but um yeah, you could just be somewhere else where it's cheaper and people could really use the the economic development.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of things that are kind of like that. Like he says, we can move different government administrative offices to different parts of the country that make more sense. Um, You know, there was a time where having everything in D.C. was good because communication infrastructure wasn't strong. But nowadays, there's really no reason for everything to be located right in Washington, D.C. For example, the IRS is located out of Kansas City and they don't really have any problems with that. So what if we said, hey, you know, a place like Minneapolis or more to the point, Cleveland that already has a really good hospital infrastructure. What if they got the offices for some of the federal health organizations you know NIH or what what have you that doesn't really need to be in DC put them in communities that could use them or what's the one that he talks about in the book like the place that prints all of the the driver's licenses or whatever some licensing bureau
0: I don't know I don't remember that one
1: yeah they could be anywhere so send it to Rochester send it to Buffalo and then oh yeah it was like
0: it was like the federal print shop yeah I mean yeah Yeah, that could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be like right on the national lawn.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that could help. And another thing that I I thought was pretty interesting was um, we've seen such an explosion in the demand for education, higher education, that is. And yet we haven't really seen a meaningfully increased supply in decades. Give give Cleveland a new national university. Give St. Louis a national university because you can attract a really well educated, highly paid workforce to an area while also providing hopefully better educational outcomes for the country as well. So I-, I liked his pitch to build a new national university system.
0: Yeah, you definitely see in the Rust Belt the cities that have been best able to thrive amidst everything else are the cities that have strong, like, research universities. <laughs> like Mm -hmm. south bend ann arbor champaign urbana like all these cities are able to uh have been able to weather better than their equal size counterparts without research universities um so that it's just just that
1: yeah so unless there's anything else you want to say about repopulating nope. cities, we can get into the the final aspect. And this is kind of where everything comes full circle, because I think, you know, whether he really just wants the title one billion Americans as like a tongue in cheek way to try to be outre and provocative or whether he really believes that we should have a billion Americans. I, think I is, mean, I don't think he would be upset at nine hundred and
0: fifty million Americans, but, you know. <laughs>
1: But I think part of the interest of this book is that in striving to achieve this goal, he's hopeful that we will be able to solve ancillary problems along the way. So the last section is sort of how to mitigate harms that would come with unchecked population growth. And even if the population doesn't grow threefold... These are still probably pretty good things to do anyway. So first of these is the idea that we have the room for a billion Americans, but we don't have the housing for a billion Americans yet. And the way to fix this, according to Iglesias, would be to... Okay, just take it away, Joe.
0: Yeah, make it easier to build houses and then people will build houses. Crazy,
1: or specifically, apartments.
0: Yeah, apartments are good. Um, generally, um, yeah, that's that's one way to go about it. I mean, I've said my piece, you can make more houses by making it easier to make more houses. Um, but, 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 let's get to my favorite one of this. (laughs) That was like (laughs) it's just funny where a common retort at the premise of one billion Americans was like, Oh my gosh. Can you imagine the traffic jams that we would have if we had a billion Americans? And then the retort back is, are we going to skip out on national or international hegemonic power and greatness as a society? Because we can't figure out traffic jams. (laughs) Like that is just such small mind thinking like that. That would be like, you know, oh, man, we can't have a billion Americans. Like, where are we going to get all the sandwiches that we'll need? Like, <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll make more sandwiches. Um. So, yeah, we, there are a lot of challenges that will have to be solved. But I, I am. I would like to be confident that we could solve them.
1: Yeah. And at least in terms of traffic jams, reinvest in infrastructure, raise the gas tax. I guess the ca- gas tax has not been raised in decades in terms of nominal dollars. So, you know, inflation adjusted. Our, our gas tax has been going down for years in a way that it, you know, there's no, no real benefit to not raising it at least to pre-inflation levels. Or what, what does he talk about? The congestion tax. You want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Oh, yeah. So congestion tax is an amazing tax that is for economic, amazing for economic efficiency, but people just generally hate it. So uh, so if I drive into Chicago, Chicago is generally a very busy place, at least in its you know, well all around but especially in its downtown lots of people are trying to drive in there and you know get in there and it just creates a whole lot of hustle and bustle so what if we want to cut down on the hustle and bustle ah uh, here's what we do we put a price on going to downtown that is more than just driving down there and using the fuel it's like a toll to get into a certain area where if it's free The, you know, the marginal cost of going to downtown is a lot lower. So a whole lot of people do it because it's very valuable to go downtown to an individual, you know, whether you're doing it for a job or for work or those are the same thing or for fun (laughs) Um, and um but if you put a little bit of price in there you're likely not to drive downtown and if you still want to do those things either a you'll pay the price and you know it'll be fine because there will be fewer people who are willing to pay the price so there is less congestion or you'll take you know like public transit or something like that Um, by putting a price on going into a certain area you make it so that You know, it disincentivizes the marginal, you know, low value person going into that area at that in, you know, at that high volume time. And then it makes it so that traffic runs smoother.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's basically just a toll. It's another toll. Yeah, And I'm not as hot on this one as a lot of the other proposals, but there's a logic to it. I see I see where he's going.
0: I mean it's oh. a very specific thing that it's trying to solve and that it's not the most pressing issue. Not but if the most. a town most. Yeah, but if a if a city is having issues with traffic, then they can tax essentially tax being at a certain place at a certain time, you know a lot of places that have congestion taxes or you know uh, congestion charges don't even have them. You know, twenty four hours a day. It's just like you know when Peak things hours, are normally yeah. most busy. Yeah.
1: So um. That's so that. a couple a couple other I've got like two two little check marks left on on my list. Um, because there's a common refrain that you hear if you've been following the discourse on this book, and that's, hey, Americans are big old polluters. So wouldn't having more Americans mean more pollution and accelerate climate change? What is Iglesias' response, Joe?
0: Well, it's the, the response is a kind of dodge, but also not. So in the environmental space, Really, what you get for the most part across the world is that wealth and pollution tend to be correlated. That doesn't have to be the case and especially if we're able to make a rapid transition to um, non-polluting electricity and you know all that kind of stuff and you know transportation through electricity, then it would not necessarily be the case that wealth is correlated with pollution but as it currently stands it does and the argument you know you get into uh you know a kind of argument and you know this has kind of been happening where you know there's ideas that you know we should have a degrowth society where we you know don't aim for economic growth anymore because economic growth is, you know, polluting and unsustainable for the world. But then for a good number of people out in the world, economic growth means the difference between a life in squalor and a life of, you know, uh, you know, somewhat decency. And it's that, yes, America is the most polluting, but what you basically say is that, there's a whole lot of people out in the world who should, who should remain poor and that they shouldn't be able to come and live a better life, that it's only the incumbent class of Americans who get to enjoy these levels of wealth and security and all this stuff because we just happen to pollute more. And then also his other argument is that while, climate change is an existential horror for the world. It's not as bad as some people say, which, you know, I, in some ways agree upon, you know, his argument is that, Hey, this is something that, you know, it it is very serious, but it's not something that's going to kill 5 billion people. It's going to be merely hundreds of millions. Which you know is a difference of kind, and all life is sacred. But I mean, it it doesn't really seem like the difference is going to be whether some people from Cambodia come and live in the United States or not.
1: Yeah, so. I'm, I'm I I am not as receptive to that latter argument that he makes. But how how I sort of summarize it is the idea that if if we live in a status quo, which we do, where wealth is associated with emissions the solution isn't to keep people poor it's to decarbonize and so that's what he calls for is rapid investment in climate r&d subsidized on a government level and to take climate change seriously you know jay insley right in jay insley everyone um
0: that'll really help everything
1: (laughs) yeah that's that's how first past the post elections work um so that that's the, the argument that I'm more receptive to, the idea that we, we can't hope that China and India or even Americans stay poor so that they pollute less. It's to make a comfortable, dignified lifestyle produce, produce less emissions, which makes yeah. sense.
0: I mean, the real, I mean, the the Joe Hicks personal thought is, is that rapid, decarbonization is going to be happen when there's a real market incentive to do so um and you know making it able so that not it's not just governments who act but you know individual firms and such as well now that's more difficult and building up that technology is you know tough and you know getting it you know, everything to align correctly to make it so that those incentives align. But there is no inherent law of nature that says economic activity has to pollute. Um, it just happens to be that that's the world that we live in at this moment.
1: So he's proposed a lot of stuff here. We are revolutionizing how we pay for college. We are giving aid directly to families and subsidizing leave and daycare. We are reforming immigration. We are spending a whole bunch in R&D. How are we going to pay for it? I
0: don't know. We'll have more taxpayers. I don't know. We can deficit spend. We don't have a whole lot of issues right now. Interest rates are, you know, basically negative for borrowing, um, yeah. So just not to literally be. But
1: yeah, to explain what that means, interest rates on borrowing money are lower than the rate of inflation, which means that the amount of interest that you will pay will not add value to the loan as much as inflation in the future will detract from the value of the loan. So lending money right now, or I guess borrowing money is like getting a couple percentage points of free money. In yeah, this and, the, and that's
0: at the government level yeah that's, yeah the fed interest
1: yeah. rate then yeah. of course you know local banks charge above prime you know right because they have yeah. to make money because they're private institutions um but yes for governments yeah. so yeah th- those are the three things that three things that iglesias performs or uh suggests raise raise taxes you know if tax base will probably go up yeah but you know what? Raise the damn capital gains tax. Raise the estate tax. There are there are targeted taxes that we could raise that will be beneficial to our tax base without stunting economic activity. Number 2, if you're really worried about spending, cut the military spending because they you know, they have surpluses that are not vital to national defense at this point and You know, if you want to cut something, that's a place to start. And then finally, deficit spending, because as Joe was explaining, for the government, we're in a position where we are really able to borrow a little bit of free money. And so anything that we spend now will never have to be fully repaid. So this is until interest rates rise, this is a great time to just put it on the big old American credit card.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we don't really have a whole lot of issues with. Um, you know, payments of the interest, but then also, I mean, we get into this every time we talk about deficit spending, and I mean, I think we're gonna, um, if Joe Biden wins, and I, I feel like we're gonna have another four years at least of talking about deficits endlessly, like we did during the Obama years. But one thing that American debt is is it's mostly held by other Americans. Um. It's it's a debt owed to ourselves for the most part. And even if it's not directly individual Americans, it's held by your state's pension fund. It's held by, you know, a a bank's assets are held in that because it's the backbone of the world financial institute, you know, institutions seen as basically zero risk investment. And. Right now, you know, <laughs> we're not it's not like, you know, there is always talk of China owns so much of our debt, but it's not like China is just going to one day settle up. You know, they have reasons why they buy up American debt. And that's, you know, has to do with trade and all that other stuff, which also makes the case for keeping trade with them, you know, blah, 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 blah. but um, yeah, it's not like. We can't have the situation like what Greece had mm-hmm. Where they lied about how much money they had to begin with And then they owed it And then they weren't able to devalue their own currency Or set their own interest rates We are <laughs> the, the world financial You know The financial institutions of the world Are based on the backbone of the US treasury bond
1: but and that, that might go away if we lose the global hegemony.
0: Yeah, so um, we need to make more debt now so that more people will buy it in the future. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, is there anything you want to talk about before we wrap up this big old main segment? Um, nothing Any other specific. Straight insights from the book. Yeah. So here's my overall takeaway is. I mean i i'm not in any serious way invested in the goal of getting to a billion americans or even really growing the population specifically but along the way there's so many good ideas contained in this book basically anything to help families is a fantastic idea especially as iglesias talks about and you know i'm someone who wants to start a family soon but not quite in the most stable Financial state and so I think that there could be direct benefits on my life from enacting that as well as accomplishing Strong goals for the nation Um, I love love the idea of repopulating cities through targeted visas a new national university system uh, Dealing with tax law. I think that that could really help places that have a lot of history and a lot of really good infrastructure that just need more people. So very enjoyable read. And in terms of policy recommendations, very strong.
0: Yeah. I would just like to say that I do believe in the project of American hegemonic power. I mean, call me imperialist or colonialist or whatever, but it, in some ways, there's going to be someone who comes out on top. The Cold War was a period where we have two, we had two competing powers, and we're back to another scenario where there are two competing powers. And while the U.S. is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, the values that I see coming out of China enacted by its state are not good. Um, there you know, there's the censorship, there's the brutality, and but then there's also the things that they do, just kind of in the face of everything else, like the concentration camps that hold the Uyghurs, or you know, the you know the brutal assimilation that they're trying to make them do. And I just absolutely do not believe in a future that is led by China. And again, I said, you know, the U.S. is not perfect, but this is something that I've posed before is that, you know, if you have a scale of, you know, on one side malevolent and on the other side benevolent, the U.S. is like right back dab in the middle of benevolent. There is so much more bad that we could do and there is a fair amount of good that can be done but you know, there's a lot of bad that has also been done. Um, And it's just at this time seems like a better future for the world. Now, if New Zealand was the rising hegemonic power, then maybe we'd have a different conversation, (laughs) but that's just not the case right now. So that's my piece on global American hegemonic power.
1: I don't know where I come down on it. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I, I don't really think in that sort of nationalistic way and I definitely know there are people out there who would strongly disagree with you on where America falls in the ledger I I haven't thought about it or or really taken enough of an interest in it to develop a strong opinion on it Um, so I, I just try to focus on people and I think the things that Iglesias advocates for could help people and that's what I want
0: Wow, man, you're just a bleeding heart liberal can't interface with the big global power struggle. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> I'm just being the <laughs> Jesus. But yeah. Um, yeah. Helping people is good. Um, one billion Americans would make a whole lot of people's lives better. Um, for the people who have not existed, to the people who could potentially exist, and to the people who exist outside of the country who enjoy, you know, don't have as good of a living. Um, also, just want to get in sni. Um, this, uh, the family agenda put forward in one billion Americans is also a very pro-life agenda. Because the number one reason women get abortions is, by and far, the financial burden. So, let's say you be a person who wishes to decrease the number of abortions. This would be something that, a policy slate that would help achieve that. Now, I'm not saying one way or another or anything about it. But, but you're just pointing
1: if, out the logic, which is on a saleable just pointing that, it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if you if you value a world in which there are fewer abortions, the a, a strong tool to do that is make it less financially imposing to have and raise kids. That's just, I mean, basically a truism.
0: Yes, yes. So, that's my thoughts.
1: I concur.
0: We have a dissenting <laughs> opinion
1: now, written um, by Neil Gorsuch. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Mister uh, Justice Gorsuch.
0: What a get! I mean, I don't take I, it. I, oh,
1: absolutely! <laughs> Are you kidding me? Of course.
0: Yeah. In a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. I, w- I will give him the softball of softball interviews. <laughs> I I don't care. I, I don't ha- I don't need to have that integrity in this
1: realm. No, um, <laughs> not on anyway. our viewership level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we do have an end segment. First first time we've Ooh. had a, a significant end segment. A film came out. Uh, you know, we like uh like our films here Unadequately informed. The trial yeah, of the Chicago the, 7. The
0: the, the the hour-long South Park's COVID special. <laughs> did, that's, did you watch that's that. That's what we were talking about. Oh, I I I caught a few minutes of it. That's why I didn't know about it. it.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) No, but uh, basically got a coin flip right here between Borat and Trial of the Chicago 7. But it's Trial of the Chicago 7 is what we're going to talk about. (laughs) We Uh,
0: coin flipped based on what I saw. So I guess (laughs) that's I guess if that's how you want to describe my viewing habits, then I guess we're spot on. But anyway, (laughs) Trial of the Chicago 7.
1: Joe and I watched all the West Wing together when we were living together. So it makes sense that an Aaron Sorkin film brings us together here on Adequately Informed. Uh, Joe, what'd you think?
0: I thought it was good. Um, Didn't have me enthralled and, you know, I, I, uh, I felt like it may have been better for me if it was a miniseries because I totally thought it was a miniseries going into (laughs) it and not a movie. So I, I was a little disappointed that it was just two hours instead of, I don't know, four or five or (laughs) 10, you know? Um, so it felt a little fast to me, but you know, it it was decent. Otherwise very Chicago, very Chicago. (laughs) Um,
1: yeah, you're Chicago. just expecting uh, Eddie Redmayne and Alex Sharp to peel off and go to a Portillo's real quick. It doesn't doesn't come, though.
0: Yeah, it never happens. They they don't say classic Chicago phrases. I can't come up with any. <laughs> um <Da> Bears. Come <laughs> on, Joe. Ah, uh, Oh, man, that was the one. OK, I guess I missed it. <laughs> but Evan, what did you think of it?
1: i'm even more bullish on it i loved it i've heard some mixed things coming out but i just thought it was absolutely fantastic as just feelings coming out from me (laughs) no other people too joe there i I talked i I got a wide net for movie opinions okay okay Um, (laughs) you don't just come to me you just don't come to
0: me the person who's somewhat disinterested for the thing you're very interested in (laughs)
1: <laughs> like I, just ballpark. How many movies have you seen this year? Like new released movies. Mm,
0: new released. Yep. Ooh, that's not good. <laughs> um, I would say five. Okay, and I couldn't tell you what they are.
1: <laughs> um, but back to the to the main point. I loved it. I think it's a really great old school courtroom drama, rousing speeches, great dialogue, even better performances, Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne leading the pack. And I, I get that it's not like this deep psychological portrait of activism or anything, but it's a question about our values, and it's a question about how we as a country approach protests and approach social change, and I think the way that it's played out in this sort of struggle, multi struggles between the justice system, the judge, the prosecutor, the defense, the defense attorney, and then even the defendants themselves who have differing views. You know, Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman came at their activism from very different perspectives. I think it yeah. prevents, it presents, rather, a quite holistic and morally probing view of American history. And of course the fact that it comes out to make the parallels ever so clear between 1968 and 2020 is just absolutely uh, fortuitous because this isn't a movie that like Sorkin said, we have to get it done now. every The world's on fire. This has been in production since like 2006, 2007. So the fact that it was able to come out at a time when the themes were just made shockingly clear it's kind of amazing what hasn't changed since 1968 which is a little depressing when you think about it but well
0: one thing one thing one thing i definitely liked was the way it was able to encapture intra-left infighting Um, yes because that happens all the dang time, and it's a bunch of people who generally agree with people being like, "Oh, well, you want to let this person into the club," and they're like, "Well, no, I don't want to let them into the club, but I feel like we have to let them into the club in order to make anything happen," and then just you know, going back and forth on you know, along those lines. And do you really care? And it's like, yeah, I do care, but I might have some concessions to make to make things happen. Well, then you don't really care. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) I liked it.
1: Um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, because there's there's that really stirring scene when when Hayden and Abby Hoffman really come to blows about you know Hayden saying uh, I hate that when people think of progressivism they're gonna think of you and all of your goofy antics and then he's like well yeah but are you really committed like how you don't even believe in a social revolution so you know how how can you possibly be on board so you know just uh yeah uh, making making specific what you were talking about in the general but uh, you said that you weren't quite riveted i was absolutely like glued to my s- seat actually i was laying on the couch but you get the you get the metaphor yeah. um can you believe there was no actual glue in my seat um, Whoa. <laughs> um like this is an over two hour movie i swear it felt like half an hour overall it just it really kept me entertained it did go by fast yeah, and, you know, there's some there's some stuff that's too Sorkin-y for his own good. Like, I think there's, you know, sometimes where he tries to have dialogue that, that snaps a little too much. And I've always uh, thought that Sorkin would benefit from having a good directorial collaborator as opposed to directing his own films. But, you know, still, still a good job. And, I mean, geez, just the—I I think the most resonant scenes were the ones of the—depicting the police brutality— that occurred at the riot. I guess to to give clarification, we haven't even, we buried the lead here because we didn't talk about what this movie is about. It's about, uh, so in 1968, Democratic National Convention was in Chicago. Uh, Hubert Humphrey was gonna be the nominee, but it it angered a lot of progressives. So they went to Chicago to protest. The police escalated the uh, protesters came in riot gear, and essentially started whomping on the protesters, and a big riot ensued and then the johnson justice department didn't find any federal criminal behavior by the protesters but then as political retribution nixon's ag decided to prosecute symbolically seven of the most high profile protesters and charge them with a federal conspiracy to commit a riot that's, that's the gist of it. So then this movie is about the trial. Um, so the, the, the sections where it shows that police brutality that occurred in Chicago in 1968, I mean, I was moved to tears. I, I think that even though it's not really about the complexities of human emotion, I think there is just this uh, ab- ability to collectively mourn what we have lost at the hands of state violence in a way that is very emotional and very cathartic so i think when we think of aaron sorkin we think of wit as opposed to pathos but i found it to be a very emotionally satisfying movie as well good (laughs) i loved it it's it's, yeah it's top five of the year for me so i guess you know joe i guess it's in your top five as well i
0: yeah
1: i guess (laughs) Five no, is I'm a generous kidding, number.
0: <laughs> Five is very generous. Um, can I boost numbers by subsequent wa- viewings of Chernobyl over and over again? Sure, Does that count? Ahead. Yeah, you, it Oh, it man, counts. we're up to like 20 now.
1: <laughs> so, Trial of the Chicago 7, streaming now on Netflix. It has my full-throated recommendation. I thought it was great.
0: Yeah, it was decent. <laughs>
1: hey i I think anything that gets you to watch a movie joe has to be pretty darn intriguing
0: it's a it's a it's a mountain it's uh got a lot of a lot of things got to line up (laughs) um but anyway so i think that uh brings us to an end to this episode wait joe Uh,
1: what are three books that you would recommend to the audience
0: um, 1 Billion <laughs> Americans th- 2 Billion Americans and 1 Billion Americans 3 the billionth <laughs>
1: the um, billioning
0: yeah uh, but uh, here we are wrapping up uh, so this is actually our one year anniversary episode um, we have yeah. been doing this for one year so all 18 of you we really appreciate you <laughs> listening <laughs> i hope you'll listen to this far um uh, you know for now we're gonna keep doing this because you know we enjoy doing this so um yeah just thanks for listening thanks to anthony hish for the music and uh my name's joe hicks
1: and mine's evan kelly
0: and we hope that you've been
1: adequately informed